podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. In today's episode, we're going to get some insights into what it's like to buy and sell businesses, specifically Amazon businesses, in 2019, but it's about a lot more than that. Specifically, what makes you feel satisfied and fulfilled? After all, that's part of the reason we're building these businesses in the first place, and frankly, that can be the hardest component. So today's guest is Corin Woodmass, and someone I've known for a long time. Corin fled his cubicle in Australia to try to make that four-hour work week dream a reality, and he got started off building, buying, and selling small web properties. And it took him many years to realize that that four-hour work week hustle didn't ultimately make him happy. Internally, I was bordering on depression. <laughs> and that's super weird to say because I had everything I thought I wanted. And I got there and I thought it sucked. And we're going to get more into that towards the end of the show. But we kick off this conversation by talking about what Corin is up to today. Something that's really stoked his passion, advising and brokering quality deals for sellers through his company, the FBABroker.com. Most times people are selling for a reason. Most times it's out of fear. I've been on both sides of transactions and I just want to help each client get the best outcome for them. And he has big dreams for his new business's future, as you'll hear. So my goal for this year is to close 20 million in transactions. Next year is 100 million in transactions. And I can tell you combined in the few years since we started, we haven't hit 20 million yet. But I can see where this business is going. And more importantly, where our buyers are. We just ticked over a billion dollars in registered buyer pool, which is nuts. And a lot of those guys want the large deals. I was messaging you about being in New York recently and that alone is a $10 million deal. Corn, you've done a lot of different types of businesses. Why does the world need another business broker? The average business broker doesn't really have the seller's best interest at heart, I don't believe. And there's a, a gap between a business broker and someone like an investment banker or M&A advisor. So our approach is we look at the person behind the deal and the business, and we say, well, what would it take? to get the absolute best outcome for this business. And oftentimes when I first talk to people, it's not to sell right now. That's not the best option to get them the outcome they want. Some of the things that surprise me, how people talk about, and when I say people, business owners, how groups of business owners talk about exits, talk about buyer types, and partially because of non-disclosure agreements, you never really get to the heart of what the deal structure was. It's like revenue in business. Everyone knows their revenue and talks revenue, right? <laughs> no one talks about net profit or how much their business is sucking all the cash out of their life. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the same thing with an exit. 
you maybe have a public list price and people see that your business was for sale at whatever multiple or whatever list price. And then if it sells, the average person will assume that you got all of that cash at close and buyers were lined up wanting your asset because it was the perfect business that had never been seen before. (laughs) And that's just not the case. You know, most times people are selling for a reason. Most times it's out of fear. There's no two deals that are ever the same. Even if you're dealing with the same buyer, for instance, it will be, they'll see something completely different that you don't see. There's a lot of timing that goes into selling a business, which is why we focus on building as big a buyer pool as possible to give people as many options as possible. In deal making, I say one is none. If you have one buyer that's interested, oftentimes that means nothing. (laughs) You need multiple people interested. So I like to think of it when I talk to someone the first time is I need them to think about or convince themselves to sell as opposed to not sell because we always start from a default position of not selling. And the, the real concept behind that is to get the absolute best outcome for each client, not have hundreds of listings. I've been on both sides of transactions and I just want to help each client get the best outcome for them. So what Does happens then when you're like flying to New York and there's these big buyers there and they're excited about your inventory of potential opportunities? How do you disclose to them that like, hey, I'm actually trying to maximize how much this sells for? That's pretty standard in the industry, actually, <laughs> for you know investment bankers or M&A guys. That's what they do. They take a deal to market and they try and maximize value by finding the right buyer fit or the right buyer pool. So we're just following a different model, I guess. But, you know, it's interesting because we put out so much data and we've been watching this market for so long. Oftentimes the buyers are, are asking me about or our team about value, deal structure, transfer process, those type of things. They're keen to know what it actually takes to get these deals done. These guys in New York, they're more traditional M&A guys. A brand that sells mostly via Amazon is different to them and they want to know how they should view that deal. So I wondered how Corin has seen the marketplace and Amazon businesses change over the last few years. And just a heads up, when Corin says inventory in this context, he's talking about the total number of businesses for sale in the marketplace. Oh man, a lot's changed. (laughs) In the beginning, I literally had buyers that would say, I'll buy anything that sells on Amazon. (laughs) And now it's definitely not the case. There's just more sophistication because there's more inventory on the market and there's more deals that aren't selling through. You know, not everyone, because we're so focused on this space and we're watching the whole market, we can see the, the overall macro trends, if you will, in the marketplace. And we don't get visibility on every deal, of course. The biggest trends we've seen are an abundance of deals on the market. So there's a lot of listings. So a lot of people have heard other people sell. They're like, yep, I'll go out. I'll sell my business too. And that's just not the case. The overall sell-through rate last year, confirmed sales, was about 20% of the market sold through. And that's everywhere. So we find anything that's publicly available, whether it's someone trying to sell their business themselves through a broker, through a marketplace, through a traditional business broker with got about 60 or 70 different brokers or marketplaces that we're tracking 
And there's a lot of listings on the market. There's about 230 deals live right now available at all different price points. The biggest takeaway is the because there's so much inventory on the market, even a novice investor at the six-figure range can easily see 50, 60 deals and figure out what's a good business and what's not. That's the biggest change we've seen for sure. Who are the people... Because you get to see like the inside baseball of many of these deals. Who are the people that you sort of squint your eyes a little bit and smirk and say, wow, they're really, those people got this thing figured out. Like who's winning right now? Right now, I strongly believe it's the buy side that's winning. So another trend we're seeing under a million dollar list price is the multiples are dropping and they're very soft because of, partially because of the inventory, partially because There's no one helping people see what's a good deal or helping them necessarily understand how to make that deal better. Or maybe they just don't care. They just want out, right? The multiples are softer there. I think the buy side in that range, the zero to a million, you need to see a lot of deals to get a good deal for you. I was talking to a lady last night. She runs a traditional manufacturing business and she has her retailers sell her product on Amazon, for instance. And we were talking to her about, well, why don't you take back control of your own product and your own brand? She didn't quite realize you could do that. But then she was also saying that she acquired a small brand in the economic downturn of 0809. She went and bought another brand and because of her distribution, she could blow this brand up. And we were talking to her about picking up Amazon-based brands and then putting them into her distribution channels and she could get an easy win. Maybe she could double or triple the business in a year or two. So I feel like anyone that comes into this space on the buy side with unfair advantage, so whether it's distribution, it's more capital, it's a better understanding of marketing outside of Amazon. A lot of business owners that sell product brands via Amazon, because it's relatively easy to get into that ecosystem and you can basically grow a business really fast without traditional marketing and sales skills. So anyone that has traditional digital marketing, offline marketing, direct response kind of marketing chops can come in and take something that's working that customers love and then build it outside of Amazon and then not come in with the fear mindset. Today's show is sponsored by dynamitejobs.co. It's our newest baby and targets something we're passionate about here at the TMBA, helping your business succeed through growing amazing remote teams. And we know from personal experience just how hard it can be to find the right people. And that's why we've designed Dynamite Jobs to address that problem. So starting at as low as $200, we can help you find your next remote team member. And for $500, we'll handpick the best candidates using a pre-vetting process. We call it WiseMatch. And it's designed to save you days, even weeks of your time determining the top-ranking candidates for the role that you need. And for those of you seeking remote jobs, I urge you to register with us. It's completely free. I promise you we're not just the next job board. We want to work actively with you to identify ideal positions for your skill set. So whether you're looking to hire great people or whether you're one of those great people who feels that your skills are wasted in your current company and you want more freedom and flexibility in your life, check out dynamitejobs.co today. What about the sell side? Who's winning on the sell side? I think there's definitely a subset 
unfortunately, that are seriously just pumping and dumping at different levels. So you'll see this a lot at the lower levels of enterprise value. So under 100,000, under 500,000. Those brands that have just been pumped up in a short period of time, the seller themselves don't know if the business will continue. So if they get a cash out at two to three times earnings, that's a win for them. But the ones that I'm really seeing that are winning are brands and businesses that have built such momentum behind their business that it's legit getting uncomfortable. Their brand is growing so fast that they need to put in more capital. But to do that, their lines of credit are personally guaranteed. More of their net worth is built up in this business. Maybe they're the sole owner of that business and it's becoming uncomfortable. That's the perfect time. Not the perfect time, but that's one way to win is you've built a monster and you can exit, pass it on to someone instead of restraining growth. Also, there's a lot of buyers that are interested in keeping those founders on and providing growth capital. The whole private equity space really was built around these type of deal structures to keep the founders in, have them take some chips off the table and give them growth capital access to more distribution to grow the business. Or maybe they're looking to do add-on acquisitions to that brand, that business to make it stronger and then sell it in a few years time. And if you retain say 20% of the deal, you'll get they call it the second bite of the apple in the private yeah. equity world. This is their whole pitch, right? <laughs> Hang on to 20% and we'll sell this in five years, guaranteed for 10 times more. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and depends on the deal structure. They're sharp. I mean, this is all they do. They're professional deal makers. As cool as that sounds, holding back 20%, getting another exit, I guarantee you the main reason that offer is on the table is to reduce the risk of the buy side. <laughs> not improve your chances in the future as the seller. That's where the real power is to understand why an offer is like it is. One of the things that interests me just in life in general, I'm just going to say this out loud, is like important things that no one is writing about or producing content on. Because I think like Google has subconsciously persuaded us that like everything important in life has like written about. And it's just not. And so here's an example of something I'm seeing that I just haven't heard a lot about, which is over the last five years, there's been a big trend of people in the middle of their lives who have money buying themselves into entrepreneurship. They're doing it through internet businesses. And I'm wondering, do you have any insight into how these people are faring, generally speaking? There's whole MBA programs on this too. I think it's Harvard have a course called entrepreneurship through acquisition. We actually speak to a lot of these people on the sell side or in business groups like the DC, for instance. Someone will mention private equity groups and the average business owner thinks that's one thing, but there are many different versions of a private equity group. There's a group that actually has raised a fund, which is not the person you'll be talking to most of the time. Most of the funds that I'm talking to, legit raised funds, have anywhere from $100 million to $100 billion, with a B, dollars. So they're not typically looking at a seven or eight figure or six or seven figure e-commerce business, for instance. 
the people that you'll be talking to at that range on the buy side that say they're a private equity group and are, are typically independent sponsors or fundless sponsors is, is the better term. What they actually do is they have some chops in, they either have, have an MBA, maybe they've done a program like I just mentioned, maybe they have some industry experience. They go out and find deals. They tie up the deal and then they go back to their investors that they've already talked to about that concept and their investors say, yeah, sure, we'll back you. This is golf buddies, right? That's what this yes. we're talking about right <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> Passing the hat at the golf club. <laughs> it's, it's another way to view it. What do these small private equity groups have to do with these independent buyers? I've actually come across some that are both. So they're in the middle of their career. And there's two guys I'm thinking of right now that we've been through a couple deals. We haven't closed yet, haven't come to terms. But these guys are perfect examples. They worked for massive consulting firms. Because they were executives, they earned good incomes and, and the like. They have a good network. But they also have the golf buddies, right? And their golf buddies are talking to them like, you've got all this experience, we'll back you if you go find this type of deal. And they're, on the flip side, they've come up with a thesis and they've banded together two guys that have similar experience. They say, well, let's go acquire these brands. So they have a, a game plan. But even these guys, they have background. They understand the Amazon ecosystem, but they still need to go past the hat when they go do the deal. So they've given themselves a two-year window. They've actually put in a couple offers now on different deals. What advice would you give to a person in that situation? I would study. I would study my ass off. <laughs> if you want to go into Amazon, I'd learn everything there is to know about Amazon and see if it's something, if it's a business type you actually want to run, number one. Next, I'd read everything by Keith Cunningham and really dig deep into his thoughts. He's very anti-online business. He likes to buy car washes. I think he has a plumbing business that kicks off like 3 million in cash flow a year or something. It's, it's ridiculous. But he's a, a serial business acquirer and business owner as opposed to a business operator. I'd go deep into that and get a handle on it because I, I think from the outside, you can look and see these returns and see the net margins and they look really great. But if you're not coming into this space with an unfair advantage, and I call unfair advantage capital experience, distribution channels, partners, it's high risk. It's not Bitcoin high risk, but it's high risk. When I see people buy businesses because they think they'd be good at running them and fixing them, it doesn't seem like those people are having nearly as much success as the people who are bringing like a concrete asset to that business when they buy it. I couldn't agree more, mate. One parallel for this is back when I was consulting, I read a lot of Jay Abraham's stuff. And he's someone to definitely research in the marketing side of, of the world. One thing he said, and a few other consulting type gurus say this, is when you're consulting, the thing that no one really gets until they get it is that the client you work with, the ideal client is someone that's already successful. They're already on a growth trajectory. <laughs> you can give them a little bit of advice and that will mean a massive result to them. You don't want to start with someone that's starting from zero. And it's the same with, with a business. It's attractive because you're not starting from zero with the business. But oftentimes people don't think about the operational jobs it takes to actually run the thing, let alone grow it. 
if you're coming in completely blind to a space, that's a losing proposition. That's gambling. If you're coming in, like you said, with some real assets behind you, whether it's distribution, it's supply side. Supply side is huge. If you can take margin and improve the margin, you're making more money straight out of the gate. So everyone knows that Warren Buffett says the first rule of investing is never lose money. The second rule is see rule number one. And what I think is missed here, and maybe you get it, and maybe a lot of the audience does, and it just took me a while to to see this, is you definitely make money going in, but what you're investing in needs to have some value already beyond what you're seeing on the balance sheet or the P&L. So like you were saying, if you're bringing assets to the table, you can increase the value of the business, the revenue of the business immediately. Rule of thumb that to me is a correlate to Warren Buffett's quote there would be don't invest or buy a business that isn't immediately worth more because you did so. Yeah, exactly. My final question for you, Corin, you took some notes on before the exit the book. Mm-hmm. If we were to do a second edition and give you a chapter, what are some things that you would add to it or change some things around so that sellers would be better informed? If there was a continuation or a second book, I'd love it to be a continuation of what happened next. Because I think everyone likes a story, right? And your story is super interesting and your perspective is super interesting. So it was a moment in time and then you've had time to reflect on it. I'd like to see some of the maybe talking to people that have done the opposite instead of selling, what did they do instead of selling? And I've managed to meet some people, and you've mentioned this as well, that have built real wealth by holding businesses and buying more businesses, becoming the business owner instead of the operator and taking fear off the table and and just growing either via acquisitions to that add-ons for that business or buying other business models and talking to them about that path and seeing how that differs from having an exit and then doing something else. How do I not sell this thing, basically? Like, how do I maintain control of a business without having to run the damn thing every day. I mean, the reason I didn't include that because it's like, well, your guess is as good as mine because <laughs> that's yeah. challenging. You know, I don't know how to do it. That's why I sold. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thought experiment angle, right? I've had clients recently that literally read your book, still decided to go sell. It's interesting to me because sometimes selling it feels like it's the golden bullet. It's like, hey, I've built this thing to a point. I don't know what to do next. Let's sell it. And sometimes that is the best option. Seriously, that could be a great option. It could be life-changing money. It could be generational wealth. If you're unlocking that kind of cash, then yes, sell if you want to, right? But think about what you're going to do next and think about alternatives. And at least, like you said in the book, what are your other options? What else could you invest in? Like the tax alone you were mentioning that you guys were paying on that transaction is you could have really run some experiments and tried it. There's always a reason that someone wants to go sell their business. And I think oftentimes we actually lie to ourselves. A lot of people won't admit that they're scared. And a lot of people won't admit that it's really a badge of honor to talk about with their mates that they really want to sell for. I had a seven-figure exit. It's kind of a cool thing to say, hey, look how great I am. Yeah. The crazy thing is on the other side of that, as, as you've talked about a lot, and it's, it's in the book, is 
well, what now? That didn't make me happy. <laughs> That's not. And you can only mention that like a money. couple times to your buddies too, or else you know what I mean. Like you can't be the guy who continues to remind people. It's not as clutch as as you might imagine. And it's living in the past. Yeah. So the the crazy thing is entrepreneurs are always moving forward. There's momentum forward. So it's cool for a minute, but then, well, what are you doing now, dude? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's the tension of growing and momentum that actually makes life interesting. It's why we get up in the morning. You need that pressure, especially as an entrepreneur. You, you need that tension. It can't be a clear win. You have to know that there's a chance of failure to even go and do it. It's interesting to talk about. Ian mentioned it when we were selling our business and I've heard it like a broken record. It's like, if you decide you're going to sell, all of a sudden you become this superhero entrepreneur, you know? Like you figure out all your numbers. Like you didn't know your numbers for a decade and now all of a sudden you got these detailed profit and loss. You got this like organizational chart. Everybody's got clear responsibilities because you got to share this shit. And by the time you're selling, it's like, damn, this thing is sweet. Like this is really running well. This business is so great. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And it's just because you've been in it so long. It's not until you start seeing what you've created from the other side, which is really hard to do unless you have to go through the process because no one wants to dig into their numbers. It's, again, lying to yourself, head in the sand stuff. It's, well, we've got more cash at the end of the year. We're fine, right? (laughs) And revenue's growing, so that's all we need to know. (laughs) And that's, if you're really honest with yourself, honest about where your business is at, not take it personally. And if you can do that, then that's the same perspective you'll get when you go through the sale process. And you'll be forced to do that, more importantly, which is really uncomfortable. And (laughs) it's funny, I don't know if we've actually talked about this, but a few years ago, we were in Berlin, we're doing the four-hour workweek lifestyle. We'd bought affiliate sites, we were building out our e-commerce business. So on paper, we we're making money, but internally, I was bordering on depression. <laughs> and that's super weird to say because I had everything I thought I wanted and I got there and I thought it sucked. And when I did deep dives and kind of figured out why that was, it was because as a person, I need to be talking to people. I need to be, and now I realize I need to be doing deals. I need momentum. I need to have interactions with people that have the skill sets, a lot of money, these type of people. I just, I can't get enough of talking to. So I talk to investors with hundreds of millions of dollars to deploy. And I just want to talk to them all day about what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. That's fascinating to me. And if I can eventually close a deal with someone like that in whether it takes a year, 10 years, 20 years, I'll still do what I'm doing and I'd do it for free. And then on the sell side, because I've been on both sides of the transaction, I want to help clients get the best deal. So that actually gives me more energy. If I was talking to myself four years ago and saying, hey, Corin, I just flew out to New York and I was talking to these guys about this deal and we're, we're working on it and we're We've got all this diligence work to go through and we're, we're on more calls and there's tension and we don't know if we're going to get the deal done. I would have said, why are you putting yourself through this nightmare? But in actual fact, I wasn't necessarily lying to myself. I just didn't know that that was the thing. The good thing was that I, it's the gift and the curse of it, was I needed to see that four-hour workweek lifestyle, go to a bunch of countries to realize that that's not really me. When I'm on calls 
even if it's late at night or early mornings or whatever, I've got to fly to go do a deal. I might be tired when I get up. I might be tired after a long flight. But when I'm in that room and after, after I go do the deal, I'm beaming, absolutely beaming. It lights me up. I love this thought from Corin, and it's personally one of my themes of 2019 on this podcast is, yeah, there's a bunch of people out there with experience and knowledge and information to help you on this entrepreneurial journey, but what makes it happen is what's inside of you, what you know about yourself, what you find valuable what you see in the world about your life and about the market that other people don't see, that's an important part of entrepreneurship. That was one of my favorite insights from this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We're going to post the show notes, links, everything discussed in this episode over at tropicalmba.com slash Corin Woodmass. That's C-O-R-A-N-W-O-O-D-M-A-S-S. And as always, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 